Welcome to Hadar. You're about to listen to the Jerome L. Stern pre-Pesach lecture with Rabbi Shai Held, recorded live in partnership with Congregation B'nai Jeshurun on March 23rd, 2021, titled, An Exodus for Egyptians, Reading Genesis and Isaiah Together. You can find the source sheet on our website, www.hadar.org, or watch the recorded video on our YouTube channel. In just a few days, we will all engage in the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, the mitzvah of telling and retelling the story of the Exodus from Egypt. According to that story, as we all know, our Israelite ancestors were oppressed and enslaved by a cruel Pharaoh. They cried out and God intervened, saving them from their oppressors and thoroughly vanquishing Pharaoh and his army. Paro had brazenly insisted that he did not know God and therefore had no intention of listening to God. Vayomer Paro and Paro said, Mi Hashem bekolo. Who is this God to whom I am supposed to listen? Yisrael. I will not do that. Lo yadati at Hashem. I do not know this God. Yisrael lo and I will not free these people. This Pharaoh, who insists he does not know God, comes to know God against his will in a moment of utterly humiliating defeat. That is, on the surface, a major part of the story of the Exodus. It's a story about Egypt being crushed by God, punished for its oppression of Israel, its cruel and callous treatment of God's people. But what I want to suggest tonight is that there is another side of Egypt's experience of Exodus. That Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, in fact tells us two different stories in which Egypt experiences God's liberation not through being defeated as the oppressor, but through being liberated as the oppressed. I'd like to examine two stories. First, the story of Hagar, the Egyptian slave, at some length, and then, more briefly, the story of the Egyptians as a whole, as envisioned and imagined by the prophet Isaiah. I'll conclude, I hope, with some reflections on what these stories are meant to tell us about God, and by implication, about our obligations in the world. I want to start by reading closely much of Genesis 16. So if you have a Tanakh available to you, you might want to open it, or you can open the source sheet that's been shared with you. Genesis 16 begins like this. V'sarai eshet Avram lo yaldalo, v'la shivcha mitzrit ushma hagar. Sarai, the wife of Avram, had not given birth for him. She had an Egyptian slave, and her name was Hagar. These words, and her name was Hagar, are actually extremely important because, as we will soon see, the narrator and God refer to Hagar by name, but her master and mistress, Avram and Sarai, never refer to her by name, fail to see her as a person, treat her, as the late Tikva Freimerkensky put it, as a mere womb with legs. Verse 2, and Sarai said to Avram, Look, 
Hashem, God, has kept me from having a child. Bona el shivchati, consort please with my slave. Ulai ibanemimena, perhaps I shall be built up through her. Vayishma Avram lekol Sarai, and Avram did as Sarai instructed him. Two things we have to note about this verse as we enter into this story. First of all, the wonderful wordplay, ibaneh, maybe I will be ibaneh through Hagar, Sarai says, which means to be built up, but also to have a son, a ben. And then also the words, vayishma Avram lekol Sarai, and Avram did as Sarai said. Avram does not want to do this. As we'll see even more clearly in the following verse, he is passive, obedient, doing what Sarai asks of him. I'll just say this quickly here. This is not necessarily a sign of virtuous behavior on his part. More on that in a moment. Sarai, the wife of Avram, took the Egyptian slave Hagar, after 10 years, after 10 years of their living together in the land of Canaan. And she gave him to Avram, her husband, as a wife. Normally, when a man takes a woman as a wife in biblical Hebrew, we hear the phrase, and he took. But here, the narrator seemingly goes out of his way to say vatikach, and she took, as if to underscore that it is Sarai who takes initiative and is fully in charge here. There is, of course, something painfully ironic about this, even tragic, because on the surface, Sarai is in control, but just under the surface, she is desperate and out of control. Vayavoel hagar vatahar. And he cohabited with, he, Avram, cohabited with Hagar, and she became pregnant. harata, And she saw that she had become pregnant. And her mistress was lowered in her eyes. There is a wonderful but rarely noticed ambiguity in this verse. We all read to mean her mistress was lowered in her eyes, meaning that when she, Hagar, became pregnant, Hagar began to think less of Sarai. But the Bible scholar Christopher Hurd points out that you can actually hear the verse as follows. Vayavoel Hagar, vatahar, and Avram consorted with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Vateireki harata, and she saw that she had become pregnant. Vatekal gvirta and her mistress was lowered in her own eyes. Sarai was lowered in her own eyes. The ambiguity may be intentional. Is it Sarai's eyes or Hagar's eyes in which Sarai has been lowered? Because it conveys something crucial. How often we project our insecurities and worse outward so that we perceive others as slighting us when in fact the voice of derision comes from deep within. And I'll say here in passing that although the Torah will never stop and say patriarchy hurts women, it will, in fact, in this story, I think, pull us between the pain of Sarai and the pain of Hagar. It will elicit the human cost, draw out the human cost of patriarchy. In any case, 
The next verse will make clear that from Sarai's perspective, it is Hagar who has indeed begun to see her differently. Vatomer Sarai el Avram, chamasi alecha. Sarai said to Avram, the wrong done to me is your fault. Or maybe even, may the wrong done to me be upon you. Anochi natati shivchati I gave you my slave in your bosom. And she saw that she became pregnant, and I was lowered in her eyes. May God judge between you and me. Now, this is a very odd moment. Presumably angry at Hagar, Sarai positively explodes at Avram. And the question is, why? Why is he the object of her wrath. There is much we can say about this, most, if not all of it, speculative. But I want to mention one possibility, which I find actually just devastatingly painful to think about. In the next chapter, chapter 17, God appears to Avram, renames him Avraham, and promises him that Sarai will soon give birth to a child of the covenantal promise. Sarai will give birth. Nations will come from this promised child. Avram, as we know, is skeptical. And then he utters a prayer that if Sarai can hear it, must cut her to the quick. This is source two in the packet. Vayomer Avraham ela Elohim, and Avraham said to God, Lu Yishmael yichyelefanecha. Would that Ishmael would live by your favor. Or perhaps, if only Ishmael would live under your blessing. Imagine for a second Sarah, now her name, overhearing this utterly devastating prayer uttered by her husband. In Abraham's eyes, Sarah must conclude, the covenant and the promise are intended for him and not for them. When the moment of truth comes, if you pardon the colloquialism, Avram is more than willing to throw Sarah under the bus. Now, of course, we don't know that Sarai heard this, and in any case, Avraham utters these words sometime after the falling out with Hagar. But one way to perhaps interpret Sarai's anger at Avraham is to understand that she has sensed and intuited this, intuited this all along, this dark truth that Avraham does not see her as an intrinsic, non-negotiable partner to the covenantal promise. She is his wife, but she is not necessarily heir to the promise in the same way that he is. Now, turning back to chapter 16, Avraham washes his hands of the conflict that has emerged between Sarai and Hagar. Or perhaps we should say, washes his hands of the hostility that Sarai has begun to feel towards Hagar. Vayomer Avram el Sarai, hinei shifchatech biadech. And Avram said to Sarai, your slave is in your hands, asila hatov be'inayich. Do to her as you wish. If someone you love felt hurt, humiliated, deeply wounded, and in a fit of rage said to you, I am going to go destroy the person who has hurt me, it would not be the height of love or friendship to say, go for it, right? Avraham's response actually indicates some profound level of absence. Do to her as you want. I am out of this picture. 
Abraham is obedient, but not present. I imagine the scene that will later unfold in Genesis between Isaac and Rebekah as an attempt to repair this disheartening scene between Abraham and Sarah. If you look at source 3, Genesis 25, And Isaac prayed. I'll give you the JPS translation. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. JPS renders the Hebrew as on behalf of his wife. But the Hebrew could just as easily be rendered as in the presence of his wife. Perhaps both meanings are intended here. Isaac prays on Rebekah's behalf, but he also does so in her presence so that she knows that he is there with her and for her. She is an integral, non-negotiable part of his life. And no less crucially, and perhaps more so, she is an integral, non-negotiable part of the covenant with God. But now we turn to the end of verse 6, when the situation hits rock bottom. And Sarai oppressed her, and she, Hagar, ran away from her. We can't miss the word chosen to describe Sarai's treatment of Hagar, vate'aneha, the same word, inui, that will later be used to characterize the Egyptians' mistreatment and abuse of the Israelites. You can see that by looking at source four below from the book of Exodus. Now let's stop for just a moment and try better to understand the nature, and for that matter, the gravity of what Sarah does wrong here. In a remarkable comment, Nachmanides Ramban actually says that this sin explains, is the origin of the history of Muslim anti-Semitism. This is part of his view that all of Jewish history is essentially foretold or fore-experienced, if you will, by the ancestors. But what exactly led Sarai to fall this far? In your packet, you have three attempts to explain that, which I'm just going to gesture towards because I think they provide incredibly rich material for thinking about, for wrestling with, and for growing from. Nechama Leibowitz makes the really interesting observation that a person has to be careful not to take moral commitments upon herself that actually are so demanding that she can't possibly meet them and therefore will end up falling to a level that she would never have fallen to otherwise. That is, overreaching leads to devastating fall. Tikva Freimerkensky makes the sober observation that Sarai had already been a slave herself in Pharaoh's house, and that the dream of ethics, the dream of ethics is that from our experience of oppression, we learn to empathize with and care for the oppressed. That is the mitzvah of loving the stranger in the Torah. But Freimer Kensky notes, this rarely happens. And here we see that the previous victim, Sarai, readily becomes the victimizer, the oppressor of Hagar. I'll admit that the reading I personally find most moving here is offered by the medieval sage Rabbi David Kimchi, Radak. Radak says that this is a moment where great piety and ethics are clear. When you finally have a chance to really hurt the person you have dreamed of hurting, 
At that moment, what ethics and piety require is to turn away and not use all the power you have. He quotes the poet Ibn Gabirol, Mana'a amchila be'et ha'yecholet. How beautiful is forgiveness in the moment when you finally have power. Sarai finally has a chance to pay Hagar back and tragically, unconscionably, she takes that chance rather than foregoing it. Amazingly, Radak says, this is why this story is in the Torah, to teach us how not to use our power in such moments. Now back to this story for a moment. Remember where we are. Hagar has run away, and now an angel finds her. And an angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. Al Ha'ayin Bederech Shur, the spring on the road to Shur. More on this in a second, but first, verse 8. Vayomer, Hagar Shivchat Sarai, Emi Zevat, the Anatelechi. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where are you coming from and where are you going? Notice first, as I intimated earlier, the narrator told us Ushma Hagar, and her name was Hagar. Yet her master and mistress, Avram and Sarai, never once referred to her by name. She was only, is only, Shifchati, my slave, and Shifchatech, your slave. Then the angel of God encounters her, and the very first word he says is Hagar. Avram and Sarai may not know that their slave has a name. They may actively deny that core aspect of her humanity, but God does not forget. Avram and Sarai's slave is a human being, just like they are, and she has a name, Hagar. And yet, honesty demands that we notice that the angel does not just refer to her as Hagar, but goes on and calls her Hagar, Shivchat Sarai, Hagar, slave of Sarai. As the feminist scholar Phyllis Tribble notes, even as the angel acknowledges the personhood of this woman, the appositive maid of Sarai tempers that recognition, for Hagar remains a servant in the vocabulary of the divine. So you have God giving, as it were, with one hand and seemingly almost ungiving with the other. Now, the end of verse 8. Vatomer, and she answered, Mipnei Sarai gvirti anochi borachat. I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. Recall, this is really important. The angel asked her two questions. Where are you coming from and where are you going? But Hagar, seemingly bereft and dejected, replies only about her past. I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. She is only too keenly aware of the miseries of her past perhaps so keenly aware of those miseries that she cannot imagine a future for herself at all. And yet, the narrator informs us that the angel finds Hagar at the spring on the road to Shur, which is actually on the road to Egypt. So the reader, we, are perhaps intended to assume that Hagar is on the way home, returning to Egypt. Hagar is lost but not completely lost. That's important to keep in mind for later. And now things 
get really interesting and on the face of it, disturbing. Vayomer Malach Hashem, and the angel of God said to her, Shuvi el return to your mistress, v'hitani tachat yadeha, and allow yourself to be oppressed by her hand. Now, why on earth would the angel send Hagar back to an abusive mistress? Strikingly, the actions of this angel are in violation of biblical law. Because if you look at source nine in your packet, Deuteronomy 23, you see that in contrast to the entire ancient Near East, the Torah insists that it is forbidden to return a fugitive slave to their master. So how can the angel of God tell Hagar, you must go back and submit to the oppression from which you ran away? We will return to this in a moment, but first, let's consider the rest of the angel's words. Vayomer lamalach Hashem, and the angel of God said further to her, I will vastly multiply your offspring. There'll be too many of them to count. He then announces that Hagar is pregnant and instructs her to name her son Yishmael, which means God hears, Kishama Hashem el Onyech, because, quote, the Lord has heard your suffering. The angel then offers what may seem like a strange prediction about the son to be born. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. Is giving birth to a combative fighter, a wild man, really such a blessing? The point, I think, is that Ishmael will be strong and not easily subjugated. No one will be able to enslave this incredibly powerful and when necessary, combative man. As John Levinson puts it, the fierce independence of the Ishmaelites will vindicate the humiliating thraldom of their matriarch's life. Though Hagar has been and will continue to be forced to endure slavery, she is assured that her child will not share her fate. What follows is one of the most moving moments in all of Tanakh. Vatikra shem Hashem hadover eleha, ata el roi. And she called the Lord who spoke to her, you are el roi, which likely means either you are the God who sees me or you are the God of seeing. When God sees Hagar, when God really sees Hagar, and promises her a son in the short term, an immense offspring in the long. Hagar responds by naming God. She is the only character in the Bible to give God a name. You are the God who sees me. Ata el roi. Hagar, not surprisingly, is a heroic figure in African-American feminist thought, in womanist thought. A slave woman, imagined as black, who is the one character who gives God a name. And that name is, you see me even when no one else does. Notice also the description of God as Hashem Hadover Ileha, the Lord who speaks to her. And then notice Abraham and Sarah speak only about her and never to her, but God speaks to her. Again, where they effectively deny her humanity God insistently affirms it. The person God sees and reveals God's self to 
is, in Israelite terms, a foreigner and an outsider. And not just any foreigner and outsider, but an Egyptian. One thing we can say right away, God's promise to Hagar indicates that God is concerned with and active in the life of people and persons beyond Israel. God is deeply concerned with the fate and destiny of Abraham and Sarai, but God is not exclusively concerned with their destiny. The downtrodden elsewhere matter too. And not just the downtrodden elsewhere, we should add, but also the downtrodden specifically victimized by Israel. As we've seen, Hagar is charged to name her son God Hears. Crucially, as the Bible scholar Kathleen O'Connor observes, what God hears or gives heed to is the affliction of an abandoned, dehumanized, and harshly abused slave woman. And Hagar herself describes God as the one who nevertheless insistently sees her. As O'Connor says, to be seen in one's suffering is to receive a most basic form of compassion. For another to see you as you are, to recognize your pain, your shame, and your dehumanization is to have your humanity restored. The God of Israel, according to this story, is the God who restores the humanity of the dehumanized. The God of Israel sees and hears the lonely, humiliated, foreign slave woman. Now, finally, we're ready to return to the disturbing question. Why would this angel send Hagar back to be further oppressed? Scholars debate this point seemingly endlessly. Some describe this scene as the most pointed counterexample to the overgeneralization that the biblical God is on the side of the impoverished and the oppressed. That's John Levinson. Yet even they acknowledge that the blessings the angel bestows upon Hagar do seem to apply something similar to what liberation theologians call the preferential option for the poor, which is the claim that the Bible consistently gives special preference to the poor and marginalized. To be sure, God doesn't emancipate the slave, at least not yet, but God does shower her with blessing. Strikingly, though all three of Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, hear such words from God, Hagar is the first and only woman to receive them. So again, let's carefully consider, why does the angel send her back? The Bible scholar Renita Weems argues that the angel effectively has no choice because tragically, Hagar goes on seeing herself as a slave. Hagar has fled and thus signaled a yearning to be free and yet, to quote Weems, her mind remains in bonds. No angel can liberate a slave who is not yet ready to be liberated. This is a lesson God struggles with throughout God's whole history in the desert with Israel. The Bible scholar Wilma Ann Bailey argues, no, that's not what's going on here at all. Hagar's return to bondage is a matter of survival. She must play the role of humble servant until the time is right for her to be free. She has to choose to survive rather than die in the wilderness. Turning his attention to God's motivations rather than Hagar's situation, John Levinson observes of this passage that, and I quote here, God's sympathy with the oppressed is potent in Tanakh, but so is God's election of Israel, and it is the latter that trumps in this instance. 
With great deference to my teacher, I have to say I am extremely skeptical that this is what drives God's actions here. I suspect that something very different is at play in the angels directing Hagar to return to Sarai's oppression. But before I offer another interpretation, let me note what Phyllis Tribble says about this. Tribble laments that the angel's instructions to return and submit to oppression at Sarai's hands, quote, bring a divine word of terror to an abused yet courageous woman. They also, she poignantly says, strike at the heart of Exodus faith. They strike at the heart of Exodus faith. God ordering a runaway slave to return not only to bondage but also to affliction is, she says, quote, inexplicable. And by implication, I would add, also indefensible. The problem with interpretations like Levinson's and Tribble's is that, as we've seen, Hagar seems delighted by her encounter with the angel, his instructions to return to Sarai's oppression notwithstanding. Hagar senses that she's been promised something, that she's been seen in a way she has never been seen before. Hagar does not seem to think that God's concern with her has been trumped by some other, more momentous concern. Nor does she, does she see God's words as inducing terror. On the contrary, she exults in the fact that God has seen her. In order to understand what's really at play in this story, I think, it's crucial that we note the parallels between Hagar's abuse at Sarai's hands and Israel's later torment at Egypt's. As you can see in source 10, Genesis 15, Israel endures three kinds of vulnerability and oppression in Egypt. Inui, oppression, Avdut, enslavement, and Gerut, being a stranger, an outsider. In this story, just one chapter later, Hagar, the Egyptian, endures enslavement and oppression, and her name, Hagar, sounds very much like Hagar, meaning the stranger. In each case, the stronger, that is Pharaoh and Sarai, oppresses Anna, the weaker, Israel and Hagar. In each instance, God sees the affliction of the victim and encountering them in the wilderness, God blesses them and transforms them into a great nation. Hagar's oppression parallels Israel's and so too do her blessings parallel Israel's. Recall that when the angel finds Hagar after she flees from Sarah, he declares, I will greatly increase your offspring and they shall be too many to count. And later, when God encounters her again after she is banished, God instructs her to lift up her son Ishmael and hold his hand, quote, for I will make him a great nation. The divine promises made to Hagar are starkly reminiscent of the promises made to Israel. We can learn a lot, I think, by juxtaposing Genesis 16 with the chapter that immediately precedes it, Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that God will multiply his descendants, but they will be strangers in a foreign land, or they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Only then will God bring them out and give them the land. In Genesis 16, God's angel tells Hagar to return to be exploited. Afterwards, she will have a child who cannot be exploited, and God will multiply her offspring. In critical ways, Hagar's story mirrors and anticipates Israel's. As Freimer Kensky puts it, the story of Hagar parallels the story of Israel. She is the archetype. We can ask why Hagar has to endure such suffering 
before she can experience the blessings that God promises. That question parallels another equally difficult one. Why must Abraham's descendants endure generations of slavery and degradation before they can experience the blessings that God promises? Here, Frymerkensky offers an explanation that takes the breath away. It is as disturbing as it is insightful. She writes, the pattern of Hagar and Abram and of later Israel shows that the way to God's reward is through the margins of society and the depths of degradation. This pattern offers hope to the oppressed, but it remains an unexplained aspect of God's behavior in the world. I don't pretend to have an explanation, let alone a justification, for why the world seems to work this way. But I do know that there is a deep truth evident here. Often the deepest blessings emerge from great pain and even desolation. As the Talmudic sage Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai declares, the Blessed Holy One gave Israel three precious gifts, all of which were given only by means of suffering, Torah, the land of Israel, and the world to come. Both Israel and Hagar learned this the hard way, the very hard and painful way. Now, I wanna just talk briefly about Genesis 21. Sarai, Sarah, sees Yishmael doing something she doesn't like with Isaac, mitzachek, a play on Isaac's name. Phyllis Tribble in one of her essays wonderfully translates this as Ishmael was Isaacing, mitzachek. But whatever Sarai sees, she doesn't like it. And she tells Avram, she instructs him to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Only not surprisingly, she refers to them as that slave woman and her son. Avram doesn't like it. Avram doesn't want to do it. It was terrible to him. And then oddly, God comes and tells him, don't fret. Do what Sarah says. Whatever she tells you, you should do. Now, this is very, very strange. Avraham here seems to hear pangs of conscience, and God says, I overrule them. Don't let your pangs of conscience stop you from chasing away this woman and her son, who seemingly have done nothing at all. And yet, God responds to Ishmael in a way that is again reminiscent of God's relationship with Israel. In a statement that is highly significant but easy to miss, we are told that God was with Yishmael as he grew up. Vayihi Elohim et Hana'ar. And as you can see in sources 12 to 14, the same will subsequently be said of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph. Like the three of them, the chosen people, Yishmael, the non-chosen too, is blessed with God's presence and God's active assistance. More than that, God's being with Yishmael while he dwells in the wilderness parallels what Exodus will tell us about God's relationship to Isaac's descendants while they are in the wilderness. As Exodus 13 tells us, this is source 15, God went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and by a, as a pillar of fire by night. God is with Israel. God is with Ishmael. Still, though, God's actions raise this question. Why does God tell Avram to do what Sarah says. Triple worries. Vididi identifies here not with the slave, but with her oppressors. 
Why would God side with the powerful against the powerless? I'm not sure that God does. Frymer Kensky again offers a powerful perspective on what transpires here. In a world in which slavery is accepted, Frymer Kensky notes, Hagar and Yishmael are not sold. They are sent away, which means that they are liberated. In other words, where, where Tribble sees exile, Frymer Kensky finds exodus. To be sure, the path before Hagar is filled with uncertainty and danger. But as the text itself makes clear, God is with the mother and her son. When their water runs out, God shows them to a well. Now notice this very carefully, how Hagar's experience parallels and prefigures Israel's. Just as Hagar wanders thirsty through the desert until God provides her with water, sound familiar? So too will the Israelites when they depart Egypt. In slavery and in freedom, Frymer Kensky writes, Hagar is Israel. But that, I have to say, does not seem quite right to me. The point is not that Hagar is Israel, but rather that God cares about Hagar even though she is not Israel. She is an Egyptian, an Egyptian under God's blessing and God's protective concern. Here in the heart of Genesis, we find an exodus. God works with the troubling motives and actions of Sarah and turns a potential act of oppression into a moment of liberation. An Egyptian slave is freed from the hands of her Israelite oppressor. In Exodus, when Egypt oppresses Israel and Israel cries out, God steps in and liberates the oppressed from their oppressor. Genesis offers a mirror image. When Israel oppresses an Egyptian and that Egyptian cries out, God steps in, more subtly to be sure, and liberates the oppressed from her oppressor. That is a remarkable moment. The moment in which Avram gives her just a little bottle, it's one of the most disturbing moments in the Torah on its face. He sends Hagar away with a little bottle of Poland spring and says, good luck. And it's a moment that seems horrific. But what we are given to understand, I think, is Hagar is going to be thirsty in the wilderness. She is going to have the same fate as Israel, and she will be guided and saved just as Israel will. She is the one who can say, Ata el roi, you are the God who sees even me. Now let's shift gears dramatically for a moment and turn to Isaiah chapter 19, which I will try to talk about, as I mentioned, quickly. The prophet seeks to convince Israel to rely only on God rather than on earthly powers. He warns them against turning to Egypt for help in fighting off Assyria. Egypt, he tells them, is itself headed for calamitous ruin. Isaiah imagines sheer devastation in Egypt. God's hand will reduce the mighty Egyptian empire to nothing. Egypt will be beset by civil war, by economic collapse, and by leadership failure. People, cities, kingdoms will all turn against each other. Egypt will be drained of spirit. Its people will futilely seek help from idols and from false gods. God will place Egypt at the mercy of a harsh master, Adonim Kasheh, and a ruthless king, Umelech Az. As the Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann rather acidly puts it, what goes around comes around. Egypt is going to know what it is to be oppressed by a brutal overlord. The Nile will fail, and the Egyptian economy will come crashing down. Poverty will be everywhere. 
The supposedly wise men of Egypt will be exposed as fools, will make absurd predictions. They do not know God's plans for Egypt, and they have nothing to offer those who consult them. Every aspect of Egyptian life will be reduced to rubble and despair. Devastation will simply overrun this once great empire. Time prevents me from expanding on this point, but I will just note in passing that as described in Isaiah, the devastation besetting Egypt in many ways parallels Judah's own devastation. But then Isaiah's prophecy shifts. Darkness turns to light, and the substance and tone of what he says change completely. First, you can look at Isaiah 19, verse 18 in your packet. The prophet imagines five Egyptian cities, including the great Heliopolis, the city where the Egyptian sun god is worshipped. Five Egyptian cities will begin to speak Hebrew and swear loyalty to God. I am reading Ir Haheres, city of the sun, instead of the Masoretic Ir Haheres, city of destruction, as several Hebrew manuscripts do. Soon an altar and a pillar for worshiping God will be erected in the heart of the land of Egypt. And then something strikingly reminiscent of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt will take place. This is, I think, one of the most arresting verses you can ever encounter. When the Egyptians cry out to the Lord against oppressors, God will send them a savior and a champion to deliver them. The words used here, cry out, yitzaku, oppressors, lochatzim, deliver them, hitzilam. And of course, the experience invoked directly recall the Israelites' own experience of God's saving power. Egypt's experience, Egypt as a whole, will experience something directly parallel to Israel's own formative experience with God. The consequence of all this is that, this is verse 21, Venoda Hashem le Mitzrayim, Viyadu Mitzrayim et Hashem bayom hahu, Veavdu Zevachu mincha, Venadru neder Lashem Vishilemu. God will make God's self known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will acknowledge the Lord in that day, and they shall serve God with sacrifice and oblation, and shall make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. Please notice the words. Vinoda, viyadu, God will be known and the Egyptians will know. Remember the Pharaoh who said, I do not know God. And God said, I will make myself known. And then the making known was through defeat and humiliation, the crushing of an oppressor. But here now, Egypt will one day experience knowing God, not as the crusher of the oppressor, but as the lover and liberator of the oppressed. God says to Israel in Egypt, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who freed you from the labor of the Egyptians. Just as Israel comes to know God through the experience of being saved from affliction, so too will Egypt. In Isaiah's vision, Egypt will undergo a total transformation. In the book of Exodus, God works hard to cause an obstinate Pharaoh who insists he does not know God to know and acknowledge God whether he wishes to or not. And Pharaoh acknowledges God only when he has been thoroughly vanquished. As a continuation of the Exodus story, the book of Isaiah implicitly 
I am tempted to say all but explicitly, makes a startling claim. God does not rest content with the Egyptians knowing God out of defeat. God wants them to know God through salvation. In other words, God wants the Egyptians to experience God just as the Israelites did, just as we will in just a few days. God wants to be known by and through God's mercy and not just by and through God's justice. To put this differently, God does not only want to be feared or held in awe, God also wants to be loved, not only by Israel, but also by its former oppressors. Accordingly, Isaiah declares that God will indeed afflict Egypt, but this time God will also heal Rapho them, just as God had healed Israel, I am the Lord your healer, Rophecha, long ago. Compare Isaiah 19.22 with Exodus 15.26. But Isaiah goes even further in some of the most controversial and surprising lines in the Bible. The prophet imagines a future day when, quote, there shall be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians shall join with the Egyptians and the Egyptians with the Assyrians. And then the Egyptians together with the Assyrians will serve the Lord. Isaiah's vision is stunning. Two competing, frequently warring superpowers will achieve religious and political unity. Instead of erecting walls to separate them, they will build highways to connect them and they will serve God together. But the prophet is not done. He goes on and declares this. In that day, Israel shall be a third partner with Egypt and Assyria as a blessing on earth. For the Lord of hosts will bless them, saying, Blessed be my people Egypt, my handiwork Assyria, my very own Israel. Isaiah's revolutionary vision does two things. First, it elevates Israel such that it will be one of the world's three great superpowers. Puny Israel is now on a par with Egypt and Assyria. But second, it does so by relativizing Israel's own cherished uniqueness, at least to some extent. God's loving epithets for Israel, my people, Ami, my handiwork, Maaseyadai, are now applied to Israel's erstwhile enemies, Egypt and Assyria. Interpreters argue about whether Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are totally equalized in Isaiah's prophecy, each one with its own pet name, or whether Israel's being described as God's very own, Nachalati, suggests that it remains uniquely precious to God. We should tread carefully here. Against those who maintain that Isaiah's point is that it is the world that turns out to be God's chosen people, I think we should offer a more nuanced interpretation. Israel, for Isaiah, is God's chosen people. But that emphatically does not mean that it has a monopoly on God's attention and concern, nor does it mean that it is the only people to worship God. Rather, Israel's elect status is maintained, as Joel Kaminsky puts it, and the other two nations are elevated nearer to Israel's level. The crucial point is that to ask whether Israel is elect 
or whether God cares for the whole world is to impose a dichotomy that is utterly foreign to the Bible itself. Israel is elect and, not but, Israel is elect and God cares for other people and other peoples too. Or to put this differently, particularism and universalism are not at all mutually exclusive. A second Isaiah, the book of Isaiah beginning in chapter 40 will make clear God ultimately wants to be known by all, not just by Israel. The story of Hagar, I think, serves at least two purposes. First, it reminds us, warns us, you might say, that just as God is attentive to Israel when Israel is a victim, so also is God attentive to the victim when Israel is the victimizer. More than that, as I tried to argue in the heart of Torah, it makes the point that Israel can just as easily as Egypt become the oppressor. The role of victim and victimizer are not fixed for all time. Second, it reminds us that although the election of Israel is fundamental to biblical theology, the Bible decidedly does not believe that God cares only for Israel. Other peoples and other persons matter too. Isaiah's vision, I think, reasserts the second point. God is not a patron or an ethnic God. God's concern extends so wide as to include Israel's hopefully soon-to-be former enemies within it. That is a point the book of Jonah will make with equally great passion. You may hate Nineveh, but I don't. But Isaiah's vision also makes another point that I think is worth reflecting on and internalizing. Again, God does not want to be known only for God's justice, but also for God's love and compassion. And God is not content with Israel knowing God for God's compassion and Israel's oppressors knowing God for God's justice. Ultimately, God wants to be known for love and compassion everywhere, even amongst Israel's cruel oppressors. Both stories, in other words, insistently proclaim that God ultimately wants to be known by all as the one who remembers the downtrodden, who sees the unseen, ata el roi, who hears the cries and groans of the abandoned and neglected, of the abused and downtrodden. I have said countless times in classes and lectures at Hadar that part of what it means to love God is to strive to love those whom God loves. If we want to worship the God of Israel, we too have to love the vulnerable and the exploited, to see the unseen and to help liberate them from their oppressors. Perhaps that is part of Isaiah's vision too. A case can be made, I think, I don't think it's obvious, but I do think it's a plausible reading, that God has the Israelites endure oppression in Egypt, according to the Torah, precisely in the hopes that our suffering will teach us empathy. Precisely in the hopes that the experience of slavery and degradation will teach us to empathize with the downtrodden. Perhaps then, Isaiah thinks that the Egyptians enduring oppression and then liberation will help correct biblical Egypt's lack of empathy with, indeed its cruelty towards the vulnerable and the downtrodden. If you defeat them, they might rise again. If you transform them, they are fundamentally different than they once were. So as we retell the story this year, my blessing and my challenge for us is that may we too learn empathy from our people's suffering and may we be worthy of being called worshipers and lovers of the God who sees when all too often human beings are blind.
a God who sees the neglected and forgotten. Thank you so much, Rav Shai. This is Morty once again. Um, thank you so much for sharing this deeply meaningful Torah with us as we move closer and closer to Pesach. We're going to move to a brief question and answer portion of our program. Uh, for those who have to hop off, we wish you a good evening, a Shavua Tov, and an early Chag Kasher V'Sameach. And uh, with that, I'm going to ask Rav Shai a couple questions. Are you ready? Ready. Um, so first, a uh, specific question. Is there a connection between Avram's passivity towards Hagar and God's later order to sacrifice Isaac? Is this intended to teach Avram about the pain of cruelty towards Hagar and Ishmael? Why don't we start with that? Wow, that's a really interesting question. So I want to, let me answer that question from an angle. I don't know, to say the least, I don't know what motivates God in the scene of the Akedah. But what I do think is striking is that the next time we see Isaac after the Akedah, he is described as coming from Be'er Lachai Ro'i, which is the place where Hagar found God. That is a really interesting moment. And the Midrash picks up on this and picks up on this and imagines that in the wake of the Akedah, Isaac went to find Hagar. Isaac goes to bring Hagar home. He wants Avram to be married to her. Right? The Midrash assumes that Keturah, the wife Avram takes, is actually Hagar. So just imagine this scene for a moment. Isaac comes down from the Akedah. He feels, who knows what he feels? Victimized, bewildered, confused, torn in a variety of different directions. And what comes to his mind is to go find Hagar because he's discovered a new depth of empathy for her. He knows what it's like, perhaps, to feel abandoned. And he goes and brings his mother's rival home and says to Abraham, you should marry her. You should be with her. And Isaac becomes an object lesson. You know, Isaac gets a raw deal. We describe Isaac so often as the passive one. In fact, I, I, I've argued, as a variety of Bible scholars have argued, that in many ways you can talk about Avraham, Rivka, and Yaakov as the three ancestors. And yet, as I said earlier tonight, Isaac is the one who is attentive to his own wife's suffering, and he's also, according to this Midrash, the one who's attentive to Avraham's other wife's suffering. And that is something the Akedah, at minimum, makes possible, much as I want to be reticent about what God's motivations might be. Thank you. Moving to what I think might be a bit of a harder question. Harder than that one? Okay. Harder than that one. Um, does God remain on Israel's side, quote unquote, even when they are the empowered party? Is God only protecting Israel when Israel is oppressed? Must we go on being oppressed in order to have God's love? Is that part of God's love for us? Oi. Was that oh, you or the question? Oh, that was the questioner. Okay, great. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure it wasn't you correcting at me. So, look, here's, here's what I think we can say about this. I don't think it is the case that Israel needs to be oppressed in order to be the recipient of God's love. If anything, the Torah and the prophets are preoccupied with the idea that God wants to shower Israel with endless blessing. 
It is not that God does not bless Israel when Israel is powerful. It is that God withdraws God's blessing when Israel is powerful and unjust, right? That is to say, what God says very clearly, I think, is if you behave like the Amorites, you will share their fate. Or to say this differently, here's what I've come to understand. This may be totally obvious, but it took me a few years to get to this. God's promises to Israel are eternal and non-negotiable. But whether any particular generation of Israelites will enjoy those blessings is conditional on their behavior. So it's not that Israel being powerful turns God away. It's that being powerful so often leads to corruption, which turns God away. That's the rub. Can Israel be a society that is powerful and compassionate? That is the dream that animates, for example, Sefer Dvarim. Can you have a society in which all Israel sees themselves as family, as sibling, and in which the outsider is loved and the downtrodden is cared for, and that the general rules of economy are actually at times suspended in the name of brotherhood and care. That's Deuteronomy 15, Shemitat Ksafim, the, the Shemitah of, of, of debt. So I, I, the question needs a tiny bit of nuancing. It's the danger of power that so worries God. It's not that power is bad. It's that power is dangerous and seductive and can often lead to very ugly places. As we see from Avram and Sarai, they could not escape exploiting their own power, even though they too, in different ways, were suffering. Thank you. We've gotten a few questions about this. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be a fastball or a curveball or what kind of question it is. Um, a few people have pointed out there are parts of the theology that you've discussed tonight that seem to hint toward, or to seem to have parallels in Christian theology. Can you comment on these parallels and maybe perhaps sharpen the differences that we sometimes, that we, that you're trying to lay out here? Well, first I should say it is no surprise that biblical ideas can be paralleled in Christianity. I would only ask where we think Christians got them from, right? It is, this is why, for example, some of you may have seen last Friday David Brooks's absolutely appalling column in the New York Times about Christian social justice, a distinctively Christian social justice, which he then goes and explains by quoting entirely Jewish and biblical ideas, right? Which he then labels distinctively Christian. There is an obligation I think we have as heirs of the Jewish tradition to reclaim what is ours. Not that Christians shouldn't have it, but that they shouldn't have it to the exclusion of us, right? So that I think is really fundamental. And the truth is the fact that more than one religion is preoccupied with empathy for the downtrodden is a good thing because there are many downtrodden and there are very few Jews, right? So if Buddhists and Christians feel this way too and try to live up to those teachings, then more power to them. I think that sometimes we get confused about the difference between Judaism and Christianity. We have internalized a narrative, many American Jews, that Judaism is particularistic and Christianity is universalistic and universalism is good where particularism is bad. First of all, Christianity is not a universalistic religion. The debate between Christianity and Judaism is not about particularity or not particularity, but about who is the legitimate heir of Abraham. It is a fight about 
who owns the particularity. And second of all, and here I'll just you know, say something that is very important to me that some of you have heard me lecture about before. Universalism is not an unmitigated blessing because in the history of the world, universalism has often gone hand in hand with imperialism. I love you, now be like I want you to be. Whereas particularism at times, yes, means ignoring other people, but also means letting other people be. This is, I think, important because Judaism, it, biblical Judaism, I think, is trying to walk a tightrope between, on the one hand, not insisting that everyone has to be Israel, and on the other hand, not wanting to forget other people too, which is why the stories that I, I talked about tonight are so important. Because the Bible, I recently saw a Jewish studies professor say, if you want to know how parochial Judaism is, just read the Hebrew Bible. So I chose to read the Hebrew Bible tonight. And it's not that parochial. It actually talks about lovingly transforming God's own enemies. Thank you. I, I want to ask just one more question. Um, how... What, what do you think is the best way for human beings to cultivate a posture of empathy towards the downtrodden and, and, and sometimes, as we've seen in the last few years, toward, even towards people with power? How do, we, how do we cultivate that posture of empathy and sensitivity and kindness? You know, empathy is a double-edged sword because on the one hand, as Paul Bloom and others have argued, we tend to empathize with people who are like us. And so empathy can reinforce our boundaries. On the other hand, as Franz de Waal and other primatologists have argued, empathy is the one thing that can get us to cross boundaries very often when we see that our enemy too cries over their own child. The Rosh Hashanah Shofar, listening to Sisra's mother's tears. So one thing that empathy requires is a cultivation a conscious cultivation of empathy that goes beyond the borders of those who I naturally empathize with, those who look like me, those who believe like me, those who are in my tax bracket, whatever it might be. The expansion, the use of empathy to expand our sense of who is involved in the we, who is part of my vision of the collective. Because most of us have a vision of the common good that is not good enough or common enough. So can we use empathy to, in fact, expand our horizons in that way? But I want to say something else, which is, you know, Rav Eliyahu Lopian, one of the great Bale Musar, one of the great Musar teachers of the 20th century, he says something really interesting. He says that when Exodus says, you know the experience of the stranger, he says that's not descriptive, that's a mitzvah. You have to know your own vulnerability such that you won't inflict it on someone else. Knowing your own vulnerability is everything when it comes to empathy. Because otherwise what you do is you take your pain and you shove it onto other people. So there is a mitzvah, know your own pain. Jews living at the beginning of the 21st century have to know what it is to be a people who, are, who were not that long ago decimated by the Shoah. Have to know what that is. And shape that memory in a way that reminds us that vulnerable people everywhere make a claim on us. Any final words? <laughs> Any final words? Um, good question. Um, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, 
any religion that is worth surviving is a religion that asks us to empathize with more people than just those we naturally empathize with. There is, it doesn't need to be a mitzvah to love the people you love, because you love them naturally. The mitzvah is to love the people you don't necessarily love. Love your reah, your neighbor who you don't particularly like. Love the person who doesn't look like you, who doesn't speak the same language as you, but who is a tzelem Elohim just like you. That is the work that ultimately I think religion has to help us engage in. And it is also the only hope we have for human survival, let alone human flourishing. Chag Sameach.